Coming up on episode 185 of Wheelbearings, Neelai Patel from The Verge joins us to talk tech, EVs, 5G, Fox Body Mustangs, Raptors, and more. We're driving the 2021 Toyota Tundra Trail Edition and getting stuck in the Ford Bronco Sport. And we finish up with a listener submission comparing the Alfa Romeo Giulia and Genesis G70. That's all ahead on episode 185 of Wheelbearings. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheelbearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samich from Guidehouse Insights. And Rebecca is off dealing with some personal uh, family stuff today. So uh, she's not with us. But uh, later on in the show, we will have special guest, Neelai Patel, the editor in chief of The Verge. All right. Well, let's get to it. Let's talk about what we're driving. Um, you have the. 2020 Ford Bronco Sport Badlands. So did you get stopped around? This is the same question I asked Rebecca. Like, did people stop you and want to talk about your Bronco? And you're like, well, actually, it's not the Bronco. Actually, around here, not so much because there's uh, mainly because there's actually a lot of these things around Southeast Michigan. Yeah. You know, when I, you I happen know. to be like just West of Dearborn. So well, everybody that, probably knows that's true. But um, you know, I think, I think these are, these things are actually selling really well. Cause I mean, it, I've been looking, you know, I, I, over the last six, eight weeks, I guess really the last six weeks, I've been seeing a lot of them popping up everywhere and they're not M plates. Um, so, you know, the man, that's manufacturer plates. So, you know, I think it's actually, the people are buying a lot of these things. I think they're selling really surprisingly well. And, you know, obviously that's a, that's a good thing for Ford. And, you know, I first drove the, the Bronco sport, what, back in October. Um, they had, they had the media drive back in October and, you know, th- at that time, you know, we got a chance to drive it for, you know, a couple of hours. You know, we had a couple of hours on the road and then did some off-road stuff with it at the, the Holly Oaks ORV Park, which is about an hour north of Detroit. And, um, you know, unlike the, the Bronco Sport that Rebecca and I think Nicole had one as well that we talked about a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, uh, they both had the 1.5 liter uh, turbo, which is the base engine. So that's, that's a three cylinder, uh, turbocharged engine. Uh, it's about 180 horsepower. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's good, you know, it's, but it, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel, you know, uh, as strong as, uh, the, the optional two liter engine, which is what was right. in the one I had. I had the Badlands, which is the, the top of the, the most expensive of the, the mainstream, 
um, Bronco Sports. There's also a launch edition, um, which is limited availability. I think they might actually already be sold out of those. But um, so the one I had was in a, a lovely cyber orange color, which, you know, when I saw this thing, I said, yes, the, the world needs more we vehicles do. in these bold colors. We do. I agree with that. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, chemistry was giving us all of these great colors that were just completely torching the environment. But man, was, was it cool to look at. Uh, we, we need more of that stuff, you know, just different, uh, different, different hues because everything these days on lots is like white, black, or silver. Yeah, or or you know, they usually you know, often oftentimes vehicles will have like three or four different shades of silver or gray that you can yeah. get. It's like why? And they're all named <laughs> something ridiculous. Like, yeah, and and then they'll have maybe one red, you know, or maybe one blue, you know, and and oftentimes the blues are pale blues. But at any yeah. rate, they have they have a couple of nice bold colors available on the Bronco Sport. They have a, a, a cool red, cyber orange, um, and you know, then there's a whole bunch of whites and grays and black. That's, um, I want cars. I want car lots to look like you spilled a bunch of spree candy all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> it's just exactly. Like, it just needs to be bright. So um, cyber orange probably isn't for everybody, but I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. It was fun to have something different. And you know the Bronco Sport. Uh, you know it, it's uh, they're all two tone. So you know black roof and pillars, uh, and then the gray lower body. Uh, you know and this is the the rugged the compact rugged off roader that that uh, Ford talked about a couple of years ago for, for seemed like forever before they finally launched it. And, you know, it's got a lot of the same styling cues as the, the big Bronco that uh, is, I guess, supposed to start production uh, any, like in the next couple of weeks, I believe uh, at the Wayne, Michigan assembly plant. Um, but unlike the big Bronco, you know, this one doesn't have removable doors. Um, it, you know, it doesn't have, uh, you know, as big an accessory catalog, but it, it actually does have a lot of accessories. But one, you know, the thing that separates this from an escape, because it, it shares this basic architecture with the escape, but it's actually shorter wheelbase and even shorter overhangs. So but that it looks you know, a lot better too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I so like you, the way the escape looks, but it's awful. It's like soft and inoffensive where the Bronco is a lot more bold. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, I mean, this escape has gone more in the direction of being a tall car. Yeah. You know, rather than an off-road SUV, so they they made these 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 two vehicles more focused on their their target markets. Um, so you know the Bronco is shorter, a few inches shorter overall. You know, um, steeper approach and departure angles for an off-roader. Got a little more ground clearance, and um, they've got the same powertrains: one point five liter and the two liter EcoBoost engines. The two liter is what was in the one I had, two hundred fifty horsepower. Um, but the, where they really differ is in the, the drivetrain. So the escapes are available in front-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. And the all-wheel drive is, you know, it defaults to front drive. And when the front wheels are slipping, you can get about 10 to 15% of the torque sent to the rear axle to give you a little more traction in slippery weather conditions. The Bronco Sport, on the other hand, is four-wheel drive. So it's, and it only comes in four wheel drive. There's no two wheel drive or front wheel drive Bronco sport. It's only four wheel drive. And, you know, so it splits the torque 50, 50 front and rear. It's got locking center diff, um, electronic locking rear axle as well. Um, which, you know, can be great in, in those off-road conditions. But the important thing to keep in mind with any kind of all wheel drive or four wheel drive vehicle is as good as the drivetrain might be and you know as capable as it might be ultimately it all comes down 
to that interface between the rubber and the road the, or absence of road. Did in, we tell the story case. last week? Uh, no, I don't think we did. Oh, uh, I told this you is guys, a good one. We didn't, yeah, I don't think we talked yeah. about it on the show. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna get going to get into the details of you know exactly what happened, but suffice to say that um, I ended up in some, in some deep snow. Uh, I made a, a, a bad decision about moving around another vehicle and ended up in some deep snow, um, you know, on a bit of a slope. Uh, and, you know, the, the vehicle is very stable. You know, I mean, there's no threat of it tipping over or anything like that. But, you know, there's about eight inches of snow or so. And even though the, the Bronco Sport, you know, comes with these Falcon Wild Peak off-road or all-terrain tires, you know, there's still limits, you know, when you're in deep, you know, kind of wet, slushy snow, you know, the temperature was, you know, just, just above freezing actually. Uh, and, you know, even with, I think it's just, just shy of eight inches of ground clearance in this thing, you know, when you're bottomed out those, those tires, you know, especially if you're trying to go up a slope, yes. they just can't get enough grip to, to pull you up. And so, you know, ended up needing a little bit of assistance. Fortunately, the Bronco Sport, you know, has tow hooks standard on there, uh, on the front. Uh, and I think on the rear as well. Um, uh, you know, and, you know, driving it around previously, you know, after we had had some snow, you know, on level ground, you know, on some snow covered roads that hadn't been plowed yet, it was great. Very, very capable. Feels, feels really solid and stable, but, you know, trying to get up, trying to tr climb up a slope through some heavy, wet snow, where there just isn't traction, even with, you know, the center diff and the rear axle locked, you know, instead of having, instead of sitting there spinning the front wheels, you're just sitting there spinning all four wheels. You know? Or none. It, it spun no wheel. Like, oh. I was going to ask you, like, what did the, the stability and traction control actually let you do? Or did it just like you can actually, off the brakes? You can, you can turn off the traction control completely. You know, I mean, it's a, the Bronco Sport has what they call goat modes, you know, go, go over any terrain modes. Uh, apparently so not. Well, you can go over any terrain, well, just you went not over, necessarily yeah. any you surface. Didn't necessarily get through, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, I mean, that the limiting factor there was the tires. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah. I, on, on winter tires, I'm sure you would have had no problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, you know, again, it's, it's a, we've talked about this, you know, many times before, you know, the, the difference that winter tires can make, um, you know, or, or having the right tires for the situation that you're driving in is, is really crucial. That. You know, and that was the limiting factor here. I mean, in every, everything else I've driven it in, you know, when we were at the off-road park last last fall, you know, going up 20% or 20-degree hills, you know, up and down 20-degree hills, going over boulders and, and, and logs and all kinds of other stuff. It was dry dirt, you know, or even through, you know, through uh, a stream, you know, going through a creek or a pond. You know, it's got, I think, 29 inches of water fording capability. Uh, so that's, you know, you can do, you can go a lot of places with this, but, you know, then this is why they have the Bronco family. Now you've got the Bronco sport and the, and then the big Bronco that's coming. The big Bronco is the one that's really, you know, that's the one that goes up against the Wrangler. That, that thing is supposed to be able to go pretty much anywhere. You know, the Bronco sport is more the, uh, the lifestyle off-road vehicle. This is the one that takes you to the trailhead. Uh, you know, and you take your bikes out and, and go, uh, bike, you know, go uh, bike, mountain biking, or you know, go camping and things like that. So it's not the ultimate off-roader, uh, but it is it is remarkably capable. But it does have like, but even you know, even something like the Big Bronco is going to have its limits. There's places it's not going to be able to go. 
Um, and, you know, the limits of the Bronco sport are somewhat less than that. Uh, so, you know, but within, within the, you know, as long as you're aware of those limits and try not to exceed them, then, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun to drive. It drives really well. The driving dynamics are really good. Um, you know, the, you know, the interior differs, you know, it's, well, it's completely different from an escape. You know, you look at it from the outside or from the inside, you are not going to, um, mistake these two vehicles for sharing a platform architecture. They are, they look completely different. There's very few shared components. Um, you know, inside the Bronco Sport, there's more hard plastics, um, you know, which, you know, it's done that way for a reason, you know, to make it easier to clean, you know, because, you know, if you're taking this thing on adventures, you know, you're more likely to, you know, be tracking dirt in and out of this thing or have dust in it, you know, be able to just wipe it down. Uh, it's really nice in that way. The Bronco Sport is a couple inches taller than the Escape, you know, it has, has more room between the floor and the roof on the inside. We talked about before, one of the accessories that they're offering is a Yakima bike rack that goes actually inside. And the reason why they made it taller and did the stepped roof was so you could actually fit two mountain bikes inside and lock them away. Uh, you know, one of the other nice features they have, you know, when you open the tailgate, there's a couple of flood lamps, you know, in the, in the tailgate, you know, so, you know, campsite, you know, you can turn on those flood lamps. Oh, and like eliminate. up above? Like yeah, in the, so they're, oh, nice. they're they're facing down. So when you open the yeah. tailgate, they're facing down, and they'll illuminate you know about a hundred square foot area or so. Well, um, now I I would like one. Um, so whoever's listening from Ford, please send us more. Send I'm, sure, I'm sure I'm sure you'll get them in your fleet soon. Yeah, I think um, they're probably already in the fleet. They're just working yeah. their way through. And then the um, you know the also bringing back the uh, the separate tailgate glass. So you can leave the main tailgate, the metal closed, and just flip up the glass, you know, if you've got a surfboard or something you want to hang out the back. So a lot of lot of cool detail touches, you know, it's it's a it's a fun vehicle to drive. It's, you know, it's it's fairly reasonably priced. Uh, price starts around 26,000. The one I had, the the Badlands, you know, that had most of the options on there was about 36, a little over 36,000 delivered. Um, one interesting detail when you, you know, when you, if you go to the build and price, you know, option it out, you'll find, you know, the standard set of wheels, you know, there's two sets of 17 inch wheels that you can get on the Badlands. The standard set, you know, are these like split, like these five Y spoke wheels. They're, they're attractive wheels, but you know, they look more like sportier wheels. Um, and then there's a set of wheels that look like traditional steel wheels. You know, they, they've got, you know, holes all, you know, punched all, you know, that's like 10, 10 holes around it. You know, you look at them, you know, they're, they're painted dark gray. They look like steelies and, yeah. you know, they're pretty cool looking. They're actually aluminum wheels, even though they, they look like steelies and they're actually an $800 option above the base wheels. <laughs> well, you know, why as, didn't they just make steel wheels? If that's the look they're going for, is it like a weight thing or, or you know, weight I, fuel economy? I, I, which... I don't know. I, I think, it, I think it was, you know, just, you know, to give that look um, on the Bronco, there are actually steel wheels available. Uh, on the Bronco, but not on the the Bronco Sport, um, and you know with the with the two hundred and fifty horsepower two liter, you know that's got more than enough performance. You know it's this thing's plenty quick, um, so it's it's a fun vehicle to drive. You know if you're looking for something that is more capable than a you know than a traditional um, crossover compact crossover, um, you know and has a has a distinct unique look in it look to it that you know probably the closest thing it looks like you know is a Land Rover Defender. Uh, but yeah. it's, you know, it's quite a bit cheaper than a Defender, um, you know, and the kind of the direct competitor to this would be the Jeep Compass Trailhawk, 
um, you know, it's almost exactly the same footprint, you know, same length and wheelbase and everything pretty much as the, as the compass. Um, the, the distinction between the two is that the, uh, the compass, you know, has kind of that lower profile, the, the way the body design is the body shape. It's got a lower profile, lower roof line. So you can't, you won't have as much room inside as what you get in the Bronco. So you can't do things like store your bikes inside the, the, the cabin of the vehicle. Um, but uh, no, it's it's fun. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, well, it's this this thing I think we're seeing a lot of in the automotive world is the vehicle itself matters a little less than the way they've dressed it up. You know, because like you said, it's the Escape. And the Escape is good to drive. I liked the Escape the last time I had one, which was a while ago now. But it, it was powerful. It was comfortable. It rode well. It had good chassis discipline. All of those things transfer to the Bronco Sport, they're tweaked a little bit because the vehicle's mission is slightly different. Its image is slightly different. But what you're doing with the Bronco Sport is you're packaging it in a way that just sort of, it, it surprises, it delights the the customer. It makes them feel like this thing is really special, even though it's, it's on essentially parts bin components. Mm-hmm. Not saying that the parts bin is bad. If they're good components, use them. <laughs> like, uh, so to me, the, the curiosity is just to see all of the enthusiasm for the Bronco Sport when you know, we're all over here saying, like, it's really just an escape. But it's, it's a cool escape, right? Like, it's, that to me has been fascinating to watch, just how they took what they had, repackaged it, and put it out there. And it's, it's been so popular, apparently, if, it's, if you're seeing a lot of them on the road. But it's also gotten a lot of attention, which was what... Uh, I guess was kind of the goal is sort of the Bronco sport creates a stair step mm-hmm. for the, the actual Bronco to, to climb up on. Um, Cause they're not going to make the same volume with the Bronco. It's just, it's more expensive. It's more, more purpose built. It's not supposed to have that kind of volume. So uh, Ford's going to print money with these. I hope. <laughs> I, I, I think so. I, I think, I think it's going to be a big success for them. And, but, you know, and, and to what you said, you know, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of the underpinnings that are shared, but there's also a lot that's unique. And this is kind of you know, they've fall, Ford's followed a similar model over the last six or seven years now with Lincoln as well. You know, Lincoln's share a lot under the skin with Ford's, but you know they have visually separated them from corresponding Ford vehicles and added enough unique things like you know, take the Aviator and Explorer. You know, the Aviator and Explorer share a, a basic architecture. But, um, you know, there's powertrain options in the Aviator that aren't available in Explorer. They look completely different inside and out. Um, And even, you know, in the case of the Aviator, it even has a completely different front suspension from the Explorer. The Explorer has struck front suspension, the upper and lower control arms on the Aviator. So, you know, they've Ford's been really smart about, you know, taking the parts using using the parts where sharing parts where it makes sense and adding enough distinction between them to really separate it. So it's not just badge engineering. You know, I mean, you know, in this case, you know, the four wheel drive versus the all wheel drive is a really important distinction. You know, you can go a lot of places with an, with a Bronco sport that you can't with an, with an escape. So I, I think, I think this is a, a smart approach. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the market is, is backing you up on that. So yeah. <laughs> uh, right, what did nobody, you have? nobody cares about the greasy parts. Um, <laughs> 
So I had the 2020 Toyota Tundra SR5 uh, Trail Edition. So the Trail Edition is new for 2020 or 20... Is it, hang on, hang on. I got the sticker here. I actually had a 21. It's 2021. Uh, and the Trail Edition is new. It basically is an appearance package. It adds some different uh, bits and pieces here and there. So um, it's based on the SR5 Crew Max. And so it has the SR5 upgrade package. There's a bigger fuel tank. There's front bucket seats with some power lumbar and stuff. It's it's updated a little bit. The SR5 is the first step off the the base model um, Tundra, which I think is the SR. Uh, I forget off the top of my head. But it you know, has uh, dark alloy wheels. It has the grill from the 1794 edition. So it, it looks a little different. Um, the one that I have is in a, a pretty spiffy color called cement, which I think is also uh, new for, for 21 for this edition. Just, just uh, by, uh, you know, out of curiosity, would that be a shade of gray? Yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> it's almost like bluish gray, though. Um, oh, okay. It, it, you know, the Tundra's never been a great looking truck, but it looks good here. Uh, it's, it's not, so here's the thing with the Tundra. (laughs) (laughs) If you were going to make like a back to the future four, uh, the Tundra is your time machine, but your movie wouldn't actually be all that exciting because all you really have to do is get in. You know, I mean, you don't go back that far. You go back like 15 years, um, and as a bonus, you get early 70s fuel economy out of it. But you know, there's nothing actually wrong with the Tundra, and there's quite a bit that's right. It's got character uh, now, I think. And but I have a theory about that, and it's, I, I named the theory um, entropy resistant personality development. Uh, <laughs> And the hypothesis is that the longer an automaker keeps a model in production without major changes, the more comfortable that model gets in its own skin. So it matures, it stops running the rat race, gets, gets kind of like an air cooled beetle or yeah, a Citroen yeah, exactly. de Chavot. Right, exactly. It gets confident in its abilities, kind of laughs off its limitations, uh, which clearly don't matter as much as advertising copy wants you to believe anyway. Um, and so, you know, those, those limitations can also become personality quirks, like you mentioned with the, the beetle. Um, so the, this is clearly anthropomorphizing the tundra (laughs) quite a bit, uh, probably midlife projection, um, by me, but you know, the tundra is a good truck. It's just not a modern truck. And, you know, modern trucks have done two things though. They've run up the numbers. So lots of horsepower, lots of towing capacity. Uh, they've also become luxury cars and the tundra hasn't really done either of those and by not doing those it hasn't lost the truck plot like some of the more modern trucks you could accuse them of uh they haven't really lost it but they've kind of buried it you know the things we talk about with modern trucks uh the numbers is sort of like a given now and the truckiness is sort of a given we talk about all of the the luxury car features and maybe that's that's us but those are the things that they put in there to get us talking um so those extra chapters are not part of the Tundra's appendix. It's it's a V8. It's got manual four-wheel drive, six-speed auto. The cabin is relaxed fit. Um, it's, you know, there's a, only a few choices in cab size and bed length. I think there's like two. Uh, you can get the, um, what's the Crew Max is what this one is. And then there's, I think there's the shorter, or is it Crew Max and Super Crew? I forget. Anyway, 
there's not that many choices with the tundra um but the space is great the tundra's always been roomy it's also been kind of underwhelming in terms of materials which you know even the nice ones the 1794 edition has as as nice as they can make it this one's not quite that nice this has cloth seats with accent stitching and, and stuff and uh, the plastic quality in the interior is like recession grade, like 2008 recession grade, which always boggled my mind because I remember when the Tundra launched, it was 2007. <laughs> we were like riding high on that, that, that economy where, you know, mortgage backed securities were pumping everything up and, and, uh, everything was expensive and yeah, apparently Toyota had planned ahead and <laughs> decided that they were going to make awful interiors and, the interior quality here is still chintzy um even though it was initially worse so i'm not a huge fan of the the stuff you you touch you know the door panels and stuff like that but overall the controls are good it's comfortable uh it's quiet around town ergonomically because it's old it's actually kind of outstanding comparatively you know there's big knobs for the climate the dash vents you could use without much dexterity so it's it's clearly something that they sat in and tried to use with gloves which i think is that that's the classic truck test you know everything is a little bit oversized so you, when you don't have that fine control if you are gloved up or you're working or something you can still get at the controls um you know we we talk about toyota infotainment a lot S- Still not great. <laughs> uh, Apple CarPlay, uh, but it's a tiny screen on the head unit, which is fine, uh, but it, the screen doesn't have a ton of resolution. So that's really, you know, I wish it was a little bit more responsive and I wish that they would make touch targets larger, which is my consistent complaint. Um, you know, and and then you get to, to driving it. I think you'd be surprised to hear that the Tundra is trucky. <laughs> <laughs> It's not it's not bad trucky, but it it just it's it's like, you know, 2005, 2007 truck yeah. ride quality. Right, exactly, which is not it's not terrible, but it feels it's it's, heavy. it's 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 much better than 1987 truck ride yeah. quality. Yeah. Well, and and we got to remember too like I've been driving a lot of trucks and all of those trucks that I've been driving are two generations at least newer and there is a difference. It's it's probably not enough to really matter if you if you want a tundra you're still going to buy a tundra um and the the charms are there you know the engine sounds great it's a 5.7 liter v8 i think it's like 381 horsepower 401 pound feet of torque so that's not awful i mean i'd rather the higher performance version of the v8 that they just announced for the uh is 500 f sport which is like a, a 100 horsepower more or so but i don't think it's got the right power curve for the truck um it works together really well. You know, the, the, the powertrain is kind of frozen in amber. The 5.7 and the 6-speed, they work smoothly together. Uh, the other thing that they've done to get that 10,000-pound towing capacity, which surprised me when I looked it up, um, is they've got short gearing. That's kind of a hot rider trick, right? So you can you can tow a lot with it, but uh, and it's going to feel responsive until you get it up on the highway and there, you know, where it feels zippy around town, it really doesn't want to cruise much more than like 65, 70. You start to, to really wind it up on, on the tack. Um, and, and some of that I think is the performance, uh, the, not the performance, but the exhaust note. Uh, I couldn't see whether it has like a TRD exhaust or something, but it just, there's a rumble from the engine. Like I said, it sounds good, but on the highway, you start to want an extra 
overdrive. And it's it's not necessarily when you look at the tack, it's it's not necessarily revving that hard. It's just throaty. <laughs> yeah. Um so I I think you know the best thing to think about the the tundra is that it's two thirds of a sequoia. You know, so because the way it's configured here, the bed is short and this one has the extra storage inside. So it's the Toyota version of the Ram box, which consumes more of the bed, I think, than the, the Ram solution. And I think it's really for people like me, um, you know, suburban or further out, you know, dad where the Tacoma is too small. You don't necessarily trust the domestic quality reputation, although you, you're their stuff has been great for a long time. There's just that hangover. I, I mean, you know, the, the Tundra, you know, actually has a really good quality reputation. You know, I mean, people drive these things. It's regularly drive them, you know, two, 300,000 miles. And I think Toyota recently had, I think they had uh, one, you know, somebody that had driven a million miles with yeah. one of these Tundras. So, you know, they, they are, you know, quite durable. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is if you just, if you want a truck, you don't want the hassle of really thinking about it too much and you're not, uh, or you're you're brand loyal to a Toyota, or you're not brand loyal at all. This is almost like the rational choice. It's clearly it's been in production for so long. It's got all the bugs worked out. Uh, it, it's a little expensive here. It's fifty thousand. It's like forty nine oh four oh. The Tundra doesn't include. I think that actually. Hang on, I'm trying to look here. The so delivery is fifteen ninety five. Uh, so I think the total includes the delivery. So that's still that's it's forty seven forty eight thousand dollars for a truck that's a throwback, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, um, and it's it's still just the SR five. So it's the SR five, and the the trail package is like twenty nine hundred dollars twenty uh, twenty nine thirty. So it's it's not like the limited or seventeen ninety four trim that I would expect to be in there. It was a little more expensive than I thought. Um, they are aggressively selling these down. There's there's good real good lease deals on the Tundras that you can find. I don't know necessarily about sort of, you know, incentives or, or whatever on a purchase, but there's a new Tundra coming. And that means that you'll be able to probably clear out some of their inventory um, and, and get a decent deal. I mean, Toyota trucks trade for high prices partially because they don't make it up in volume. You know, they, they do Camry volumes with these. They're not doing no, big not fleet even, volume. Not even Camry volumes. Yeah. They, yeah. they do. I, mean, I, was, it, I was being generous. It's all about a hundred thousand a year, which that's it. Know, I thought it was a couple hundred at least. No, uh, uh, Tacoma actually sells a lot better than the Tundra does. The Tundra is about a little over a hundred thousand a year, which, you know, Ford sells 900,000 F series, you know, GM sells uh, somewhere between 800, 850,000, uh, right. you know, Chevy and GMC trucks, um, Ram, you know, is about f- between five and 600,000 a year. So, you know, it's, although they do sell a lot more than Nissan sells to the Titan, which is about 20,000 a year. I which think. is weird because the Titan is a, like, it's a so much, such a newer truck. Yeah. Um, uh, and but, t- Nissan it, keeps trying real hard. They're throwing diesels and different engines and a heavy duty version at that. Just no, I've, I've got one in the driveway right now. We'll talk about that one next time. But excellent. Uh, yeah. The, so, I mean, if it's a, it's a super safe truck, I actually really I came away. Um, I like it. It's you know, like I said, it's 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 earned its character now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's kind of like you know, it's 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 that perfectly ripened fruit, right? Like you gotta you got to pick it now or it's going to, it's going to be deadfall and, and they've got a new one coming. So they're timing it just right. It's a safe choice. It's a good truck. It's not the most modern truck, but I think that's part of why I like it because of all the things we continue to complain about in 
you know, brand new cars where this one is, is, is seven to a 15 year old car. Really? Yeah. That's basically what it is. So, um, yeah, I'll be curious to see how, how the new Tundra changes and, and, uh, whether they manage to keep some of the character or if it just becomes, uh, just makes that big leap, you know, into one of the things that we'll, we can probably count on seeing, uh, is a hybrid in the new one. I would yeah. fully expect to see a hybrid version of the new Tundra, um, you know, along with new, new design, um, you know, probably I would guess probably a significantly upgraded interior, uh, you know, and, and a bunch of other features as well. Yeah. That's really, that's all it's missing is just fuel economy and interior quality. Yeah. The, I mean, looking, I'm fine. looking at the website, you know, 13 miles per gallon city, 17 highway yeah. is not great. It's, you yeah, know, no, it's a, awful. For a modern truck. <laughs> it's terrible. Although, but you know what? It, it, it drives it drives well. You know, it just, yeah. it, it's just, it's fine to drive. And, and Well, you know, fortunately, even though this is comparatively old by today's standards, <clears throat> you know, by the mid 2000s, you know, trucks had really evolved a lot. You know, when I, when I started, you know, working as an engineer in 1990, working on ABS and some, you know, in some cases on some of these trucks, you know, in the early nineties, still, you know, late eighties, early nineties, trucks were still really bad. You know, they had terrible steering, you know, there was a lot of slop in the steering. The brakes were awful, you know, terrible ride quality. And, you know, by the late nineties, they had really evolved. You know, they put much better brakes on trucks. You know, one of the challenges with trucks, you know, they, they put the, the brake calipers on, you know, early nineties trucks, you know, had a lot of flex in them. So when you yeah. stepped on the, the brake, you know, you'd, you'd go halfway through the pedal travel before anything happened, you know, <laughs> and now, uh, you know, they've got, you know, big stiff calipers on there. So you get much better brake feel, uh, much better steering feel. They're just, you know, every truck, you know, by the mid two thousands had gotten so much better to drive and they, they've continued to evolve, but that, you know, the, the jump, you know, from the mid two thousands to today is a lot smaller than it was from 1990 to 2005. That's true. That's that's true. And you know, honestly, the, the brakes are another area where I think the modern trucks definitely outperform the Tundra. But uh, it's not like, you know, when I think back to pickups like the, the Ford F-150 or F-Series when I was, you know, growing up, that had been the same truck since like 1978. And they built that all the way to 1996 yeah. <laughs> in, in some form. So... It's it's not quite that old yet, you know. It's getting there, um, but the uh, the tundra is due. So we'll we'll see how it is. But uh, let's move on to some questions. Well, let's just do one question. All right, let's do one question. Okay. So uh, Rick Chin wrote into us, <clears throat> said, uh, first of all, loves the show, and hearing your experience in the market. Um, and this actually kind of relates back to some of what. Um, Rebecca talked about last week. Um, one of your one of your recent podcasts, you mentioned both the Alfa Romeo Giulia and the Genesis G70, and I happen to have owned both. I enjoy sports cars, especially ones with strong focus on an enthusiast driver. I hope to get a Miata one day. Alfa Romeo seems to have a reputation of poor reliability. However, my 2017 Giulia Q4, so that's that's with the two liter turbo and all wheel drive. Um, not with the two liter, not the highest power, not the higher power quadru quadrifolio was very reliable and an absolute blast to drive. That car made such a strong connection with the driver and was so responsive. It bordered on telepathic. My dealer was 90 minutes away. And I think I went there only four times while I had the car once for its first oil change and other times for updates and recalls. The 2017 had several software updates that were incorporated into 2018 and later models. 
Uh, let's see. I travel a fair amount for work and couldn't wait to get back home to take the Julia out for hours of back road driving on country roads or a trip for the weekend. When people ask me to describe the Julia, I say that the Italians had figured out how to make a car seductive and irresistible. One longs to drive a car that feels like an extension of your whole uh, of uh, your thoughts and actions. I discovered whole new restaurants because I made up any excuse or justification I could to drive to the other side of town. Uh, as much as I wanted to get another Julia, the 2020 models were just arriving in the U.S. when I needed to return my 2017, and the deals incentives were non-existent. I almost got a 2019 because of that. About that time, the Genesis G70 Sport was getting a lot of press, and while I was familiar with Hyundai and Kia and their increase in quality and value, I knew nothing about Genesis. I found a dealer and took a couple of G70 models for a test drive over the course of three months. I do a lot of research. The G70 had so many great features, even more than the updated 2020 Julia. It also handled very well, and the 365-horsepower 3.3-liter turbo V6 is a great match for that car. The interior is great, and the economics are, also, are very good also. I enjoy the G70 a lot. If it, I feel it is a better built car than the Julia, more solid, and it has even and it has been very reliable, even better than the Julia. The stability control in the G70 is tuned perfectly for spirited driving, hang, hanging the tail out while still being easily controlled and without surprises. The extra 85 horsepower and torque in the G70 lets it do things the Julia would probably struggle to recreate. It's a wonderful car and perhaps the best value in the entire market right now. I love so many things about the G70, it's hard to find fault in it. Mediocre gas mileage, and the trunk is a bit small, and that's about it. When it comes time to look for another car, I'm going to have a, it's going to be a hard choice. However, I know I'll go back and look at the Alpha again. As great as the G70 is, it lacks some, not all, of the finesse of the Julia. And the Julia is like a surgeon's scalpel. The G70 is a fine chef's knife. The feelings that I had in the Julia still re resonate with me. I look at Genesis. I will look at Genesis again too. Hopefully, the G70 stays legitimately sporty too. Also, one final point, I feel that much of the unreliability Alpha gets blamed for comes from the 505 horsepower Quadrifolio. If you notice that when someone has a problem, it's mainly with the Quadrifolio. Maybe that's because those uh, were the press cars. I think the Julia models with the two liter were more reliable, were a more reliable experience. Looking forward to my next drive. I, that's, a, that's a great review. He should come yeah. on the show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I think he's probably right that the the quadrifolio it's and that's typical with a lot of the high performance models is they're they're a little bit more finicky than the regular uh versions. I I found that with the the S60s. I didn't want an R because everything on that car was special and it was all potential trouble whereas the T5 that I wound up with was a little bit you know it was still fun but it was a little bit um a little bit more sort of uh, reliable and just not as, as troublesome. So that's a good point. You know, the, the V6, the twin turbo V6 and the uh, Quadrifolios is both in the, uh, the Julia and the Stelvio was, you know, developed. And I think it's actually assembled by Ferrari, um, which is, you know, why it has that sound and that and feel it's to it. it's a lovely engine. My it goodness, is. is that a lovely it's, engine? It's amazing. <laughs> but, you know, everything in that car is going to be more highly stressed than it yeah. is, you know, and, you know, I, I can certainly see where, you know, especially, you know, some of the reports, uh, the car and driver and, you know, one or two other publications had some issues with theirs, you know, but, you know, they're taking their cars to the track and, you know, they, they're beating them up. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're, they're pushing them to their limits. Well, and, and they're also like early cars too. Yeah. I know car and driver had 
some trouble and some of the trouble that they have is brought on by just the fact that they're you know the cars are moving all around they're in michigan so they deal with winter and so you can't necessarily help when the high performance sedan hits a giant pothole and takes out two wheels and stuff like that so it's all kind of a balance um i think that the the julia with the two liter is probably the better balanced car overall like that's that's probably the better experience if you're going to own one yeah, I, I haven't driven the two liter Julia. I've driven the two liter Stelvio, and you know the Stelvio is basically the same thing. You know, it's a, a slightly lifted Julia wagon, essentially. <laughs> um, and it, you know, that's you know that's a wonderful engine. I mean, that that same two liter turbo, you know, that's the engine that they also use, you know, in a variety of other FCA vehicles. Uh, you know, it's the it's the base of the the base engine in the uh, the Wrangler. You know, the Wrangler uh, mild hybrid. You know, it's a it's a two liter. It's that same two liter turbo with um, you know with a forty eight volt mild hybrid system I added onto it. So you know they they use it in a, in a variety of different products, and it's going to get more use you know in the the next couple of years as well. Uh, I think you know it's it's a lovely vehicle. Um, I I can definitely see you know I, having driven both the the Julia and the G seventy, you know the 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 Julia does have you know a little bit more of that Italian flair to it. You know certainly in the way it looks, um, you know, and, and the way it drives. Um, but the the G seventy is is also an outstanding car, so it, it would be a tough choice to make between those two. Yeah, I I think that the the rarity of the Julia and the sort of spirit that it has would probably be really hard to ignore. That said, there's a lot of uh, charm going on over at Genesis these days. Uh, I really like the G seventy um, quite a bit, but I, I don't I. I really, I don't know. And, and, and you're, you're probably less likely to have some of the, the kinds of software issues that uh, you might have in the alpha. Yeah. Yeah. And, but Genesis is toying with their pricing too, which we had a comment about that where the first couple of years, the pricing was, was great. And now some of the pricing has changed. So it's, it's actually more expensive to get into one, maybe configured the way you might like it. So I don't know. I, do, do we want to suggest anything as an alternate choice, or did we just want to give Rick uh, the opportunity to sound off? I think that's good. I think All we're right. good there. Well, good. Let's uh, let's wrap it up. We have uh, an interview to get to, and uh, you have to get out of here. So. <laughs> Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're joined by uh, Nilay Patel. Uh, you're from The Verge, I think it's the flagship, but you're also on uh, Decoder as well, podcasts and various other things. Where can our, our listeners find you if they're curious, if they don't already know? Yeah, so I'm the editor-in-chief of The Verge, which is um, a fun job in that I just watch other smart people write things uh, for the site. And <laughs> That's I get what an editor-in-chief does. Um, <laughs> and then I, I host Decoder, which is a, a new podcast only a couple months old now, which is really focused on technology and business and how to make good business decisions in a world that is being turned upside down by technology. So we interview a lot of CEOs, we interview a lot of executives, academics, really try to understand how technology is changing the entire business landscape. Uh, And then really, I demand product features from CEOs who come on my show. That's really the, the if there's <laughs> well, a really un- underlying reason for me to host that show, it's to I mean, demand it, the Instagram ad features for me. I, I think that's what you should do when you have their their attention. Uh, it's amazing the access you can get as a journalist to the people at the top. So you might as well, you know, flex that muscle a little bit. Yeah, I, I know I do that every time I talk to people. I tell them you have to get rid of the touchscreen. Touchscreens do not belong in cars, and but they just they don't really they don't listen to me. Not, I gotta tell you, you, they're they're doing the opposite. They're just oh, getting bigger. I, I know they're eating the entire, and it seems like people like them. Yeah. So you're you're fighting the tide a little bit. I agree with you. I I'm, think, I'm a buttons and knobs person in a car, but yeah, man. I, I think what it is is like it's that initial impressiveness where you you get in and you go, oh look at the big. It's like when somebody has a giant TV, and in, in like a room that's like twelve by twelve, right? Then it's like a ninety inch screen. Mm-hmm. You're like this kind of sucks. <laughs> it's like sitting in front of the you know the front row at the movies. You're constantly <laughs> scanning your head back and forth to you know to see yeah. what's going on in the scene. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, but it looks impressive. I've got to say, I'm after you know a decade plus of being a tech journalist. I see a screen, a touch screen in particular, and all I see is a computer. And then I just yep. all I see is computer problems. I see the thing being slow. I see a software update issue. I, I see like five years from now, it's going to try to connect to a cloud service that's extinct. Like my entire brain is like, I don't know. I don't know. And then, or, you know, pe- but people love big touchscreens. So I'm just like the buzzkill in the room yeah. where I'm like, I don't know. I, do you want another Linux computer in your life? And that is not a compatible thought. <laughs> With most people. <laughs> so that's what we run into as well. You know, we we wind up being um, painted as like these these Luddites and you're by people who don't actually understand what the Luddites were all about. They were actually kind of like unions. Um, but, you know, tech coverage is, is this like nearly overwhelmingly future optimistic kind of thing to the point that uh, those of us who, who pump the brakes for a second and have that like skeptical eye we constantly suffer that, that like slings and arrows of, uh, well, you guys just don't, don't like it. You're just cranky and old. It's like, no, uh, there's this blind spot in tech coverage of like, did you actually imagine all of the ways that could be used even bad ways? And we, we see that where like all of a sudden Uber's being used to stalk people. It's like, (laughs) didn't you think about that before you actually like released the thing? Oh, they thought they were Um, excited about it. I would, I would, I would parse that a little, more finely. It, it, let's say cars. I'm on a car show. This is a good example. You know, 20 years ago, 
if you bought a hyper performance car, the chances that you would crash it or kill yourself were extraordinarily high, right? Mm -hmm. Because there were just not a lot of computers in that car helping you operate it. Isn't that the thrill? Uh, maybe it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of it. It's like, if you're a purist, it's part of it. Now you have cars, like consumer cars, like average cars have the performance of hypercars from 20 years ago. And they're normal cars that you can just operate, right? And there's like a lot of reasons for that. But mostly it's a bunch of invisible computers that help you operate that car. That is not a bad thing. Almost all of the problems come from human-computer interaction. So on a very basic level, it's, is it a touchscreen or is it a knob? What does the interface look like? Is the interface fast when you push the buttons? The basics, like the basics of that get ignored or overlooked all the time. And then you can scale that up to Uber built a system that lets you track every rider in the system. It turns out humans, when offered the opportunity to track every rider in the system, will take the opportunity to track every rider in the system and you have to preemptively stop it. So I think there's like, I would parse it at, we're pretty bad still at human computer interaction. <laughs> we are very good at making computers augment our abilities that we, that are useful. And I, I think that that branching point, you can just see it all over a car, right? Like in a car right now, you can be like, I would like it to be 72 degrees in this car and the car will just do it. And you will never have to think about it again. And there's not like a fourth order societal collapse because of the climate control system. That's a, but that actually winds up being, uh, that's funny that you pick climate control because that is an ongoing argument. There are those of us who prefer like only manual climate control. Because <laughs> of course. I want three knobs down there. Temperature, yeah. fan but, speed, and direction. That's it. And but, I can, I can see, and control is, those without even looking at them. Yeah, but the thing is, like the, the whole like you won't have to think about it. It turns out you'll be driving along with that thing set to seventy two, and you're like, "Why the hell is it blowing cold air at me? It's February." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because it's trying to maintain that seventy two. It's like, it's it's just so funny that like no matter what example we pick, there's going to be line. somebody. I mean, I ah. came up driving at my mom. I inherited my mom's ninety four five series BMW, and it it had those three. It had the three sliders mm -hmm. for the vents. And I like that thing was a puzzle. Like people would get in that car and be like, what? <laughs> like, where are the knobs? Right. Like, I don't understand. And like that kind of interaction design, just it ladders up like that was as manual as it gets. And it still confused the hell out of people. And so I, I just think there's a balance. Like usually when we talk about computer problems, it's literally the stuff human beings directly interact with. It is rarely the stuff that just takes care of things for you. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll and this is that. one of the issues that we've talked a lot about on the show. You know, is the the way people interact with with the technology and cars, and and also what they perceive the capabilities of that technology to be. Um, you know, one of the things I think we've talked about it here. I know I've talked about it elsewhere. Is this concept of a tunnel washing? You know, and if you remember, you know, a decade ago there was a lot of discussion around greenwashing. You know, companies, you know, like automakers, you know, putting flex fuel capability into their cars to use ethanol, use E85 that nobody ever used, but they got credit for making their cars greener. And, you know, now, you know, the, um, there's a, a great researcher, her name's Liza Dixon. She's she's based in Germany right now working on her PhD. She wrote a paper last year called uh, about this, she dubbed this term a tunnel washing, where you, you know, automakers create the perception that 
you know, these systems are more capable than they actually are. And that's dangerous for, for consumers that have to interact with it because they, mm-hmm. they think it can do more than it does. Yeah, and Can you think of an example of that? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, not right off the top of my head, but, you know, I'm sure that there's some car maker based in Silicon Valley that uh, that might have something to do with that. You know, I mean, you know, Tesla is the prime example, but, you know, other other manufacturers to lesser degrees have done the same thing, you know, with I mean, just with the, the branding uh, or some of their their marketing around, you know, some of the the partially automated driving features or, or driver assistance systems, you know, you mentioned, you know, that computers are great at helping people to do stuff. The The inverse of that is that humans are, are terrible at supervising computers. You know, yes. we're ter- you know, when, when something works most of the time, we, we tend to tune out. And the problem is it's that, you know, 1% or half percent, you know, or ten- one tenth of 1% of the time, when things happen and in a car, when those things go wrong, you know, it's not like, you know, your springboard re- uh, rebooting on your iPhone, <laughs> you know, it's, oh, shit, I'm under a truck, you know, and the yeah. roof of my car is gone. <laughs> and that's where, you know, that's where things can go really awful. Um, and we, we have to be a lot more careful about how we're implementing technology in cars. Yeah, I agree. I And I that to me, the autopilot situation when is this coming out? Uh, sometime this week. Okay. Next, next when Dan gets in, around in the to next it. few days. <laughs> okay, so if it comes out after Tuesday, um, so the next guest I have on Decoder is Austin Russell, who oh, is yeah. the CEO of Luminar. Yep, I know Austin. Um, and he, you know, he and I talked about Tesla for a while and, and the self-driving system he's building, and he basically echoed your concern. He's like, "I'm building first. We're building the lidar sensors that have." A paradigm shift level of capability enhancement and then we want to build the entire stack and sell that as a supplier to all the automakers and he's like the goal is no steering wheel and like that's what we have to stay focused on and having the steering wheel just confuses people and i i i think the confusion is in the other way i think the confusion is more what you're talking about that having a steering wheel and a thing called autopilot and watching that steering wheel move by itself makes you believe the car can drive itself Whereas if you got in a car without a steering wheel, I think the first decade of that is going to be a long process of people learning to trust those vehicles without steering wheels. Because the only other vehicles you get into routinely that you can't see the, the operator is like the monorail at Disney World yeah. or an airport, right? Like a very controlled system. And the second you're in a car on the road without a steering wheel... And the entire installed base of United States automobiles is being operated by other people around you. You are going to panic. And I think that that moment, I think, will be a big sea change for people. Yeah, uh, I'd have trouble getting into one, quite honestly. I'd like, or, you know, depending on how the system is designed around it, you know, it's like I trust a train. That's fine. Train can be autonomous. I, I mean, I trust ish. There's going to always be those outlier accidents. But. A car on the road that is driving itself with other people who are driving their own cars like that, when those two things coexist, that's where the danger lies. <laughs> it's just terrifying. Well, there, there's a reason that when you get on a commercial airliner, the pilot's standing out there, right? Like, there's a, there's a little bit of a show of, like, the cockpit doors open. You can see them. There's people there. Have you ever been on um, – I have this very distinct memory. I was once on an Airbus plane that was landing, and it was – kind of rainy and dark outside and we landed and it was great landing and the pilot came on the intercom and said hey everybody 
the autopilot landed the plane, which is like a totally normal thing. Uh-huh. But he was yeah, just like absolutely. excited because he had gotten to do it. And the whole plane was like, <laughs> what? Like the person didn't do it. Like I remember like the gasp. And it's like, well, the autopilot <laughs> flew the plane the whole rest of the time. Right, exactly. And I, I just that moment of, of a human being saying, I'm not in control of what seems like a chaotic or unpredictable situation. I think that's going to be a, a more of a cultural impediment to self-driving in the current moment where, yeah, like at least there's a person in the driver's seat in a Tesla and maybe they're just like looking at their phone and they shouldn't be, but you have that backstop of like, they're going to notice before it. And we know, we know that they are not going to, but it's still, I think, comforting to everyone around those cars. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, aviation is a, a much less chaotic environment most of the time mm-hmm. than roads are, you know, your yeah. planes are usually, you know, several miles apart. You know, there's, there's, you don't have to deal with pedestrians and cyclists and things like that. And, you know, on, on the road, it, you know, everything is very close together, happening very quickly, very randomly. You know, pedestrians change direction or cyclists change direction at any moment in time. And it, it's it's a it's in many ways a much more difficult challenge than an autopilot system. Uh, you know, I mean, autopilot in an airplane is basically cruise control. It's yeah. it's not that dramatically different from the cruise control we've had for 40, 50 years in our cars. And, you know, to, to call something in a car autopilot, uh, you know, th- that has that kind of that level of functionality implies something that is way more than what it's actually capable of. And, you know, I was just on Thursday, I was driving the new Chevy Bolt EUV uh, and it's got um, Super Cruise. It's the first non-Cadillac with Super Cruise in it. And, you know, most of the drive route was on highways because, you know, we wanted to try out Super Cruise. And, you know, it, it, I've driven Super Cruise vehicles several times before, and it, it's always, you know, kind of mind-boggling, you know, having my hands, you know, on my lap watching the steering wheel, you know, at 70 miles an hour, watching the steering wheel just <laughs> follow the road. <laughs> but, you know, at least GM, you know, on the, that interface side, they do a better job on the interaction with the driver, you know, t- letting the driver know the state of the system and when they need to take over. That's, that's been one of the challenges with Tesla's, you know, they, their system is not really great at communicating what's actually going on with the driver. What do you think of their new model S plan to have the gear shift automated? I think that that's a terrible idea. Um, it, you know, it, it's, how, you know, something like that, um, you know, where the system is guessing, you know, in, in a lot in this, you know, it's like what I said before, you know, 99 percent of the time, it's probably going to be fine because, you know, there's going to be a lot of scenarios. You know, you're in a parking lot, you're surrounded by cars, uh, you know, and the cameras are going to see, OK, there's a car in front of me, so I can't go forward. And there's an I can see there's an aisle behind me. Obviously, the driver wants to back up and back up. Fair enough. That's that's a pretty straightforward one, or pulling out of a garage, or you know whatever it might be. But there's there's going to be so many of those instances where it's ambiguous, and you know then you know then you have to go searching at, on the touchscreen, you know, to figure out how to engage it manually. And I just think it's a really terrible idea. I'm excited. I, there's like a part of me that I hate rotary shift knobs. Right? Like I can't stand them. I. I don't know. Like I'm a shift lever person and I'm like, well, if you can't give me the lever and you, you're going to make me fiddle with this dial, like honestly, I'd rather have the control on a touchscreen and the system 
trying to predict which button I'm going to push. Like, we'll see how it's executed, but there's just a level of, well, at least I don't have this stupid dial on my face. It's kind of like a slot machine, right? You never know quite exactly what you're going to get. Of course, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 all, it's actually kind of all, even when you had a shift selector on the Tesla, it's oftentimes been kind of a slot machine anyway. Uh, you know, Leo <laughs> Laporte, you know, I do a segment on his, on his radio show every week on car tech. And, you know, he used to have a model X and he, uh, you know, he talked on numerous occasions where, you know, they would put it in reverse and the car would go forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just having an electronic selector there is not necessarily a guarantee. You know, if there's a problem in the software, it's not a guarantee that it's actually going to do what you want anyway. So, you know, it's it's always a, a bit of a crapshoot when you insert software into these systems. So we dove right in. <laughs> we were uh, in we, it. We, we jumped right into the deep end, but like, let's back up just a little bit. So um, what's what's driving look like for, for Nilay Patel? Like what? How did you come to be sort of an automotive enthusiast? Let's give people a little background about sort of, uh, you know, other than the fact that you're a tech journalist, like how do you how do you come to cars? Oh, sure. Um, you know, I I was always a car person. I think my older cousins were all car nerds when we were growing up, and I just sort of inherited that from them. Um, my my parents like foolishly when I was a teenager bought me a Mustang. <laughs> Uh, it's a real mistake. <laughs> uh, it was not a great Mustang. It was like a V6. It was a 98 V6. Okay. Uh, just a miserable, like looking back, just a, actually a miserable car. Um, How long did it take you before you crashed it the first time? I, I would, I, <laughs> that Mustang, uh, it, it definitely bumped into a lot of things, but I never totaled it. That's what I will Excellent. say at this point in time. Outstanding. Uh, Outstanding. I raced Fun. the hell out of that car. It was slow. It often lost races. Yeah. Like my friend who had like a 92 Lumina would often torch that car. Like it had, yeah. I think it was 160 horsepower. It was heavy as all hell, um, but it was really fun. And so that like led me down the road to just generally paying a lot of attention to cars. And then I think, yeah, cars and technology are just, they've been on the same track for an awful long time. Certainly, you know, as sort of the 2000s, Entered the, let me take that over. As the 2000s began and the idea of the inside of the car becoming a computer really took off. And I think that started the second people wanted to plug their iPods into cars. And then you you kind of entered that crazy era of aftermarket car stereos with big screens that would like flip out and fold. And then you got to the phone and like just that race sort of was on, it was parallel to my evolution as a tech journalist, right? So you could just see where it was going. And then the cars themselves have just gotten so interesting over time. Like, we're not... I came up as a car and driver reader, right? And for, like, about 15 years, car and driver would be like, this car is almost as good as a BMW. And that was, like, all there was to say about cars. (laughs) And that has just broken open. Like, that is not the case anymore. You see a lot of very competitive, even legacy automakers. And then the flood of new car makers that we see is just absolutely fascinating to me. We were talking about Rivian before we started recording. So I just think that the space has gotten completely fascinating and cars themselves have gotten really good. And, you know, as we've been talking about self-driving, they've gotten really good right before they might totally change, which is an absolutely fascinating time to be really interested in cars. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think like we've got 
seven, eight hundred horsepower cars you could just go buy. Just yeah. if you have enough money, you can go buy yeah, you something can buy, that's you more buy a seven hundred horsepower cars. Ram TRX. You know, it's, it's insane. Yeah, or, but you need and, you need like one hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars. Yes, like, <laughs> it's uh, you. I would if I was going to try to get that engine. I don't know that I would buy it in a TRX. Maybe, and it's because I have a Raptor, so like I've got some like loyalty here. But I would rather buy that in one of the smaller. Smaller Fiat. I guess it's uh, Stellantis now. I'd yeah. rather buy it in one of the yeah. smaller Dodges uh, than where they're putting it right now. Yeah, when smaller Dodges is relative. <laughs> like, That's true. Of course, of course even, even <laughs> like that 700 horsepower is nothing compared to what's coming, you know, in the next year with electric pickup trucks. Is you know, we got mm-hmm. the the GMC Hummer. Uh, you know, Rivian. I don't think it's going to be quite that powerful, but uh, the Cybertruck. You know, I mean, th- those things are going to have over a thousand horsepower with instant torque. Uh, yeah, what what do you think about you know uh, you own a Raptor today? What do you think about the idea of these electric pickup trucks? So my Raptor, the last I looked because I I don't keep that screen up because it makes me feel bad. But my Raptor gets about fourteen or fifteen miles to the gallon, which is horrible. It's not bad for a Raptor. It's not bad, and it's like yeah. I try, like I'm, I actively try to not just burn <laughs> gas in that car. I think the TRX gets nine. Like yeah. this is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous situation and i i think you know fiat i keep calling it fiat chrysler i'm just gonna keep calling it's it okay. fiat chrysler this, I can't. you know when you when you look there for for um like the corporate information they're still separate like it's stellantis and then like you go from the stellantis site to like fca or all right so fiat i still call it this year's time so that's where yeah. i'm at i'm not letting it go <laughs> like fiat chrysler like they're not gonna be able to produce that engine for much longer given their emissions yeah maybe two three right? years like, tops so I, I get they're having fun. I think the 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 high performance electric trucks are coming. The electric F one fifty is due out this year, or they're at least going to ta- start talking about it in a more serious way this year. Um, I think that that will be a sea change because if you own one of these trucks right now, you are paying so much money for gas. Maybe you're going to pay a lot of more money for electricity compared to a, a Model Three, sure. But like you just have this enormous fixed cost that comes with operating that vehicle, and most of the people who operate them are either using them for work, in which case that cost, like it's just a real factor in their revenue and their profit, or they're just people like me who just like pickup trucks, and you're like, oh, I can get one that's even more performant, and it costs less to operate. Like I'm gonna make that trade ten out of ten. I'm pretty like the the, the new Raptor just got announced. I just bought mine in September. If they announced it with a power boost hybrid, I would have actually seriously considered making the the miserable financial decision <laughs> of trading in one new Raptor for a new one. But they didn't, so I'm just going to keep mine. Yeah, and you know the the new Raptor, you know, at least at launch, it's going to have this basically the same powertrain as what you've got. So that's <clears throat> you're not you're not missing out on too much there. I don't think I don't I don't think I think mine looks cooler. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough. So. So what's oh go ahead Sam uh, I was just gonna say I mean you know you used to live in Brooklyn now you don't that's where I was you going know, to the didn't didn't the the purchase of the Raptor didn't that coincide with your relocation last year Yeah so I had um I've been socking my money I told myself I was gonna buy another Mustang when I turned forty it's like a real I was like you know what? I'm gonna lean into this midlife crisis it's happening for me <laughs> I'm gonna do it so I've been I'd always been planning to buy a Mustang at forty. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I, I just turned 40 in December. So the pandemic hit and we left the city. We were lucky enough. We, we owned a house upstate. So we just like moved into our house here. After a while, we came out of our lease 
And one of the things that we talked about in the pandemic is, okay, we're going to live in the woods. We're going to, we have to try to get everything out of this year that we can. We, we don't want to be in a defensive posture. We want to like, okay, this like, this is how it's going to be for the next year and change. We have to like try to do things in this year that we would otherwise never do. And for me, it was, I'm by a Raptor. Like there's no other circumstance in which I would buy that, a pickup truck there's no other circumstance in which I would buy a high performance off-road pickup truck. Like, so I just sort of diverted the Mustang purchase into a Raptor. Now, what is true is that it turns out we really needed a pickup truck. <laughs> uh, so we live so far from anything that I end up after we're done recording this podcast, I'm going to load the bed of the truck with our trash from the week and drive it to the transfer station. Oh, we don't is, live on a trash like far. Wow. So like, that this is, is just that's a thing committing. every week. Um, so it turns out I needed a pickup truck. Did I need a 450 horsepower desert runner? No, I, I did not. But look, if you're going to do it, if like, that's what you got to commit like all the way. So I support that. And, and Raptors hold their value anyway. Like it's not, it's not like you won't be able to trade. I have tried to make this argument, but the, this was a sound financial decision. I like made no, everybody not, watch. Never. I made Doug Demuro. I made uh, my wife watch the Doug Demuro video. It's like a Raptors a great purchase. And she's like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> I honestly, she's, like, if you're making this mistake, right just like, too, like don't bankrupt right. us and we'll be fine. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, <laughs> I have really enjoyed owning this truck. It's very fun. Um, you know, I've done all the sort of raptory things you do with it. Like I've spent a day and a half installing fog lights in the front bumper. Like there's just like raptor stuff you do, and it's like a good time. And it's a thing. It's a project to have. Would I have ever owned this if not for the pandemic? Like probably zero percent. But I think it's it's pretty fun to have this experience. Like I said, I'm, our approach has been to try to get everything out of the pandemic year that we can that we wouldn't have otherwise done. So that said, I still want to buy a Mustang. Really <laughs> early, so. <laughs> so, you know, once this does subside, you know, I'm curious, you know, how you know the experience of leaving the city and you know how it's changed your driving style. Do you do you foresee moving back to the city? Um, at some point, or you know, is this you see this being kind of your permanent lifestyle? And you know, I guess you know, when you were in the city, did you? I assume you didn't drive much, I assume you probably took subway or, or you know, transit to yeah. get around. Uh, so yeah, we uh, we took the subway, I took a lot of Ubers actually, which isn't great. Um, and then uh, some combination of like. Delta credit card points and other things like led me to start taking a lot of lifts. It's amazing what'll shift you. Um, uh, actually, and you know what's funny is like that budget is also paying for our new car, right? Like it it has worked itself out in that Uber's plan of you won't own a car, but you'll spend a car payment on us every year, every month, was absolutely true in our case. Um, we did own the car to get up here. We own we have a Jeep Grand Cherokee. We drove it up here all the time. Um, we still have that car. I, I think when this is over is a hazy moment for everybody, right? Like we don't have access. We're not on the list. We're young and healthy and we live in the middle of nowhere. We are at the bottom of New York state's vaccine eligibility list. So when it's over for us, it's probably later for everybody else. I do think a lot of people are going to stay out of the cities, like not necessarily because they moved because of the pandemic. The way I've been thinking about it is the pandemic accelerated a lot of trends one big trend is like millennials and I'm, I am just older than millennials, but just by a tick. Um, <laughs> millennials were getting older. They're having kids and they're leaving cities. That's a thing they were doing anyway. And now they're doing it faster than before. 
are we still going to work in cities? Are we still going to go to offices? I, I strongly suspect that people are going to want to go back to offices way more than they realize, even though working remote is beneficial in some ways. I think people miss it. So I, I think that the move to live in the suburbs um, and have an easy commute to a city is going to be very high. Well, I think what I've seen is that um, the housing market has tightened up everywhere. And I think that's partially, you know, what you're what you're saying is like, there's just no inventory. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's no existing houses. There's no there's a lot of new houses, but they don't quite exist yet. And prices are sky high because companies and people have realized like that, that they were sort of forced to, to transition to remote and they figured out it works and that people are, you know, the promises are true. People are more productive. They're capturing that commute time and they're just logging on earlier, logging off later. You're getting more out of people. And uh, people are, like, you know, realizing like, well, we don't have to go into the city, or we don't have to buy in the city where the prices were already high, and we're actually seeing city prices drop, um, while you know the sprawl prices go <laughs> up, which is it's, it's, it's interesting, um, and we'll see how that balances off eventually. Um, whether people who actually want to live in the city can now afford to, versus getting uh, priced out before, so. It'll be interesting to see what happens like next year. <laughs> yeah, I, like I said, I think I, I think it being over is not a fixed point in time, right? Is it will be a long and slow sort of gradation for people. But I, I, I just fundamentally think you have some kids. Your desire to live and pay the cost of being in a city changes dramatically when that happens. That is happening to a lot of millennials. They're gonna go seek more space, but. You know, I interviewed um, uh, the CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, and he said, look, the, the challenge for us being remote is everybody knows what to do. It, that's easy remote. Like you show up to work, you have your project, you're just moving down the milestones of the project you're working on. The challenge for every company is coming up with what to do next, which requires a lot mm. more soft conversations, which requires more just a lot of serendipity. Like you, you, there's an amount of creativity and... I don't know, just inspiration that happens when you're around other people that I, I, I feel even at the verge that I think people are going to miss and it's going to draw, it's going to draw folks back to offices in a way that I think right now is sort of under, underappreciated. Yeah, I think that's true. They just sort of like, Hey, what you working on kind of thing as you're, you know, getting, getting crappy coffee at the Keurig or yeah. something, you know, same, same kind of thing. The coffee's better for working from home, but uh, some of that cross pollination, um, isn't, isn't happening. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, we've seen that that crossover with cars and tech, and I, I think it's a good opportunity having a tech journalist on. Um, I was thinking about how connected cars and even the, um, the like the self driving and the OTA updates and stuff, V two X, all of that stuff is sort of on the cusp of we're pushing the technology that we already have, the wireless like four G, and then we've got five G over here waiting but that's been kind of a disaster it's not been great (laughs) um yeah um so like is that gonna improve is 5g gonna get better i mean we've got like the fcc has been so business friendly and like you know consumer hostile and it's it's our damn airwaves they're selling off (laughs) and we're not getting anything for it uh right before Um, i came on uh verizon customer support actually tweeted if your battery is dying (laughs) turn off your 5g it's like a real awesome. thing. That, it's like a real <laughs> message from Verizon customer support. Um, you know, I, the car industry in those terms is five years behind the bleeding edge of a phone, right? Like 
just a year or two ago, I can't remember if it was GM or Ford, but like one of the the two big American car makers was bragging to me that they'd finally started putting LTE radios in their cars, which would then <laughs> enable something, right? Like, and I was like, you guys are so far behind. Like, this is like comedy levels of being behind. Like, you were shipping 3G radios in your cars last year. Those cars are new. So now you have yeah. a, a decade of 3G radios to deal with. Why are we even having this conversation? Like, why don't you replace the radios in those cars? Why don't you have an upgrade program? All the things that you would expect from a computer, they were just not ready to do. So I'm excited about the moment now with, okay, Ford is talking about sync and OTA. They've announced this partnership with Google. They're shifting, I think, from the the QNX stack to the, the Android stack. All that stuff will make it easier. None of that is going to change the fundamental problem of they've got a lot of cars on the road to support that are nowhere that are never going to have the capability. That's a decade. Then they've got to bring up a 5G radio in the car, which that's another five years, right? Like I just, I see that moment for the traditional automakers as being almost impossible to navigate. I think that's how Ford got to Google. I think they they looked at it and said, we can't do it. Uh, there was just that great story in the journal about VW uh-huh. just utterly failing with its new software architecture and the ID4 is shipping basically with like dead screens. It's like a problem. It's it's it's, it's a little yeah. bit, yeah. Um, whereas the new car makers, I think Tesla, chief among them, but Rivian, Fisker, like you name it, they don't have any of this debt, and they're bringing up the car around the idea of some level of modularity, not a lot, but some. You can replace that center screen in a Tesla and gain new capabilities. The car is being connected from the first day, and the car is being update updatable from the jump. And I think that is like one of the reasons the new car makers are particularly exciting. They've tossed out a lot of assumptions and they don't have to pay any legacy costs. 20 years from now, is that, are they just going to be where GM is today? Probably. But right now they're able to make entirely new kinds of products, starting with what we can bring up a 5G radio in a car a lot faster than Ford ever will. Yeah, I think that's, that's true as, as you know, when, when any of the legacy automakers do it, they have to consider how does this fit with our existing architecture that we already spent billions of dollars developing? And then um, how do we manage the people who bought one just today and don't get the thing that we're going to roll out tomorrow? And can we actually make that upgrade? And, and you know, again, just supporting it for, for a long time. It's, it's really thorny. To, to sort of defend Ford a little bit, um, you know, I think probably when, when they told you that about they started putting LTE radios in the cars, up until 2018... Most Ford vehicles didn't have a, a radio in them at all. They Ford had you know been relying on the bring your own device model for sync, and they actually didn't have vehicles with 3G radios in them. So you know they started ramp, you know quickly ramping up LTE radios. You know a lot of other automakers were doing it back in 2013, 2014, like GM and yeah. I don't remember others. if it was Ford or, but, or, for, or but, Ford yeah, or GM but, that but, told me that. Story. Yeah, but it, I mean Ford only did only start putting LTE radios in about three years ago, <clears throat> and. But, you know, now, you know, they're going to have to support those, you know, as they transition to 5G, you know, two or three years from now. You know, and, and the same goes for every other manufacturer. I mean, all the Teslas built today, you know, I mean, there's still a lot of Teslas on the road that have 3G radios in them. And, and you know, now they're 4G. And, you know, as they transition to 5, you know, they're going to have to keep supporting those. And that's going to depend in part on the networks. You know, I mean, GM had this problem early on with OnStar. You know, the first generation of OnStar was still 
analog. It was analog, analog cellular yeah. radios. And then they went to 2G. Yeah, and those, you know, yeah. as those networks got shut off, you know, they had to basically cut off service to those vehicles. And this is one of the, the problems. I think one of the things that people don't think about so much with their cars, because cars tend to be such long life products, you know, average age of cars on the road today in the U.S. is 12 years. And, you know, many of them are 25, 30 years old. Uh, you know, and I mean, you, you guys talk about this a lot, you know, with phones, you know, two, three-year-old phones that aren't getting updates anymore. Uh, you know, and this is one of the, the challenges in the automotive space because these products last so long. How long are they going to keep getting updates? And this is part of the how things are going to have to change for the auto industry is figuring out how they're going to support these products, you know, for the, as long as these products actually last. Uh, you know, so it's, it, I think. Consumers, you know, like the idea of OTA updates in their cars in the abstract, but I think once they actually have to start paying for subscriptions for all these things, it may start the 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 honeymoon may start to wear off pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I would just I think one thing to kind of break apart here is like where the the real value of the update is and where the perceived value of the update is, right? So Tesla pushes an update that lets you play a video game on the center screen. That is just an earned media moment for Tesla. It costs them nothing. They can push it to every one of their cars. It should not, right? I'm careful (laughs) here, but it should not affect the operation of the car at all. It probably doesn't, but you know, like weird things happen. That is an enormous earned media moment for Tesla. It reinforces the value of the Tesla ownership experience to you. It makes the car fun and alive and change. Again, very small update. My Jeep, I needed to take it to the dealer to get a software update because the shifter was killing people. Yeah. Right? Like, that is an update that I think should have been pushed over the air immediately. And it, it took a celebrity dying for Jeep to even admit that it needed to push out the update all the way and get everybody to go to the dealer and do the updates. And it, I'm sure there are still lots of Jeeps of that generation out that never got this update. That is a huge split in the value of software updates. If we can get to a place where more cars can get safety updates like this, or map updates, or all that stuff, I think people will pay for that. But to make the perceived value high, you have to do things like, well, all the icons look different now. The car feels new. Yeah. Right? Like, we we moved, we heard you that the seat heater buttons are two menus too deep, and we moved them to the, the home screen. Like... That little stuff that sort of indicates care is small, like on the grand scheme of things, but it indicates care all the way through the stack that I think most people, especially in a world where so many people are leasing their cars and they're basically just paying that fee built into it, you're yeah. going to feel it over and over again. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good well, point. It's almost like I, I think of like Tesla with the way they get that earned media bump. It's almost like a, the positive side of demagoguery where... <laughs> It's just like that, that directive comes from the top. Like, we're going to do this thing that's ridiculous, but it's going to get us three news cycles. Yeah. Um, and make the Falcon wing doors flap, you know. Right. And and there's some of that, like, because they're small and because they have a, you know, a strong personality at the top, they can move quick and they can be nimble like that. Where um, something like the shifter with, with your Jeep, you know, maybe there's um, reasons why it can't be done as an OTA update. And they'd love to do it, but they didn't publicize that well. They didn't say, you know, we'd we'd really like to push this to you, but our technology needs you to come in, and it's dangerous. Yeah. Please come in. You know, they, there's always that 
bit of opacity about why can't you do what Tesla does or why can't you do what these newer car makers do? You guys have been building cars for 100 years. Why don't you have it figured out? I just want to be clear. The update was when you open the door, it shifts in the park. Like it's not yeah, right. like and there. And it I, was I, there. I'm sure there's like, you know, someone from us is listening and like, yes, I'm sure there's. I know we're going to get an email. There's <laughs> a, a fractal amount of complexity behind me saying that. But at the end of the day, what is the change they needed to make? When right. you open the door, it shifts in the park. Yeah. Right. And, and, but that's, that's a good example. I mean, I think that that is one of those safety critical things that while you typically want to wall off functions like shifting yeah. uh, <laughs> from OTA, like, because it's so critical, is there a way to, to do it? And if you enable it, then you wind up like creating a security hole. So, like, I get it. And I, I, if, if we're going to get an email from, from Stellantis or FCA, <laughs> please, like, we do understand. Uh, but we also want you guys to keep trying and let us know that you're trying because then we can talk about it yeah. and we can say, you know, it's really tough and, and all of these things. Uh, but you know who's going to solve it? Apple. <laughs> Do you think they're actually going to make a car? Like, I, I remain hugely skeptical that they're actually going to go into automaking because um, they don't even make their own phones. Well, like, I mean, like, that's uh, – I think that's parsing a little too closely. Like, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, Honda assembles the car, right? Like, all of the parts are made by a supplier. Like, um yeah, I mean, I think Apple, the the waves of heat around the Apple car and the Apple AR headset are sine waves, <laughs> and we are just at a peak of hype and interest and noise about it. The amount of, is Hyundai going to do it? Is Kia going to do it? Is VW going to do it? Like, are they going to be the manufacturing partner? I think that kind of deal makes a lot of sense for Apple. Like. That's no. been amazing to watch. Like how anytime there's a leak, it's like, no, you're out. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> like you're done. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think some of that is is managed. Apple's a carefully managed marketing and PR shop. I think some of that is they just shut it down. Um, I don't think it makes sense for them to bring up their own manufacturing capability. They should absolutely just buy that capability from someone else. My bigger question is, are they going to make enough kinds of cars? Like if they just roll out one mid-size, mid-priced crossover, like what did they accomplish? Well, it'll, it'll be the same car as a, a mini, the, the 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 mainstream one, the Pro and the Pro Max. I guess, <laughs> and none of them will have a USB port. But that is like, and, and maybe I mean, maybe an Apple Car Edition. <laughs> but like the ceramic body. If you just think about this, <laughs> oh my god, that would be great if the Apple Car like scratched really easily. Um, uh, and they had like shift materials halfway through um if you just think about the spread of cars and car prices and the capabilities you expect once you start spending fifty sixty thousand dollars on a car right like that's the stuff that apple would want to put in the cheap car right you you are expecting right. some self-driving capability you are expecting a extremely premium interior you are that stuff gets you into a pricing zone which is you know a lucrative and growing pricing tier but it also just leaves most of the market behind. Right. And I just, I can't like I, what packaging it's a crossover SUV, right? That's what they're going to make because they're presumably going to want to make an electric one. Apple's right. not going to ship an internal combustion engine that leads you to like basically a, a mock E with a nicer interior. Like if you just think about where they would have to go and that leaves out so much of the car market. And so eventually does Apple have to make as many cars as Honda to fully own the car market 
that's just a crazy place to think about. Well, is that? Do you think that that's what they want to do though? When they go, when they enter into a market, do they want to dominate, or do they want to carve out a particular amount of volume and be fine with it? Because you, you see, like iPhone has a lot of mind share, but they don't necessarily have the market. You know, globally, Android owns the market. So it's. It, I really want to see what Apple can do when they turn their design shop loose on automotive. Uh, because the Apple designs for everything, their hardware is, is generally beautiful and well thought out. Sometimes I want to throw it, but <laughs> generally it's yeah. it's there's thought behind it. And so I want to see what they can do in automotive, but they don't necessarily need to to own volume versus you know. Um, oh, I affinity, think they do. I, 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 the problem for Apple is that they have a, a big numbers problem. So. Uh, there are a million products that I think Apple should make before a car. Apple should make a TV. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> but I know why they won't. They've told me why they won't. They would make a TV and they would spend time sourcing panels and doing all this stuff. And then a TV has a 10-year replacement cycle. And they they just like wouldn't make enough money like yep. to move the needle on their enormous business. And when you compare everything to the iPhone, the only other business that moves the needle is services which is stuff that iPhone owners buy. Well, let me let me throw it. Right. But like, but but I'm just saying, like, if you if you put yourself in the position where you enter a regulated industry like cars, where the first time a car crashes, which it absolutely will, your yep. brand takes a nosedive, and Tim Cook has to go in front of Congress and explain why his car cra- like all right. of that will happen. That even, right, we see that with Tesla and other EVs too. Like anytime an EV catches on fire, it's a it's a news story, and it's like, yeah, gas cars catch on fire too. Like it, it does happen. Yeah. Like, so well, if you're gonna if you're gonna accept all that cost, you have to think what you're gonna do is move the needle. Yeah. Well, let me let me throw an alternate approach at you, Neil. I see what you think. You know, back when the whole Project Titan thing first came out in 2015, you know, I, I wrote a bunch of articles and. and you know, I posited a concept, you know, app, and, and I think it's in even more apt today, you know, as Apple has moved their business with more and more focus on that services revenue, you know, rather because, you know, the auto industry has a lot of unique challenges that they don't face in any of their existing businesses. They, uh, you know, you've got the problem of dealers, you know, franchise dealers. Apple's not going to want franchise dealers, you know, so that's going to inherently limit where they can sell cars directly to consumers and you know the whole idea of you know do they make a complete lineup of cars instead you know what if they were to get into the robo taxi business develop a premium robo taxi service you know that you know has a you know an apple user experience in the vehicle um they can you know they control the vehicles so they're not modified by by consumers Mm -hmm. they can target markets where there's an affluent customer base that's willing to pay a premium apple price for ride hailing, for automated ride hailing, and you know they, you know they can have uh, a consistent experience. They can have one vehicle that they use, you know, in places like New York and San Francisco and Chicago and Miami and LA. What do you what do you think about that kind of approach? Again, I just something moves the needle. Like you can add Uber's business to Apple's business, and obviously Uber has a different cost structure right now because it has people in the car, but it's it's just a tiny fraction of it. Like you you would have to own the entire market for cars yeah. and the entire market for ride hailing and th- and then see that market grow in a way that regulatory concerns worldwide regulatory concerns like 
I just don't see them being in a, in a business that is not premium in that way. And so like premium ride hailing is like, we're going to take on the limo companies. And that is just, it's just a tiny blip compared to the potential risks and costs of that car crashing. So if they're going to do it, I think they're going to do it in a way that they want everyone to purchase this car. And I think fundamentally a bunch of Apple executives get in their S classes every day and they're like, M bucks is a joke. We can do better. And they're just like motivated to get on the electric car train because they see a paradigm shift coming. And they'll be, you know, the earliest rumors are still 2024. Yeah. Right. Like they're going to be on the, the, the end of the bleeding edge, which is where Apple likes to hit. But what, what are they going to make? Like at the end of the day, you have to sell a car at a range of price points that are acceptable. And it volumes that move the needle for the whole business. And, and get Apple-style profit margins, which nobody, get, nobody and, does in the auto industry. And get 30 to 40% of a margin. And that all of that is like, I don't know. I, I You know, what, like BMW leases more, most of its cars. They sell their cars twice. Like I can see yeah. Apple pursuing a strategy like that, right? Where you're basically buying a subscription to a car and they'll sell it again. And like they can generate a flywheel of profits. What as we've talked about self-driving so much, one of the big problems for Google and for Apple is that for any self-driving car to work, it needs a great map of its own. Uh-huh. And so the entire value of CarPlay, Android, all, all the stuff, like it starts to go to zero as the cars drive themselves, unless you are integrated into the car. So Google's coming at it its way. I think Apple's like, we're not going to sell our stack to people to let them run their self-driving cars. They thought about it. I think they're like, we're just going to make the whole car. It's a long way away, and I just yeah. that first car they announce is like honestly like a core question for me is is it a sedan? Is it a full size SUV? Is it a mid sized crossover? Once you enter those segments, your your kind of optionality kind of collapses. And right now we're in the great part of the Apple rumor cycle where it's just a dream. <laughs> yeah. We can all just imagine whatever we yeah. want. But like literally, once you're like, here's how big it is you suddenly know a lot of things about a car, right? How big it is and how much it costs. Like you instantly know a bunch of stuff. And I think that for Apple is as is, is difficult as anything. All right. I mean, I think that, and I probably tend to make more conservative business moves, but I mean, I think that the real opportunity for them would be to sell something like the, the UI or the, you know, the infotainment. You know, I, I've found as I've been an iPhone user for a couple of years now, I really like CarPlay because it's consistent and it, it, it works pretty well. That kind of opportunity where they can sell Apple UI to other automakers, they could become an OEM and it's something that other automakers can upcharge for. So you can find that margin. I don't, you're never going to find 30% in automotive. That's insane. But uh, you know, that's where I would be agitating to go. That may not be, I think enough of a, of a paradigm shift, I think for Apple, they like to make a big splash, and that's just like, yeah, you can you can get our branded stuff in X, Y, or Z car. <laughs> Why would we support another brand? You know, and I can see that argument as well. Yeah, I mean, they that was the rumor, right? We in Project Titan, which is a car project, has gone through forty five rumored iterations. Right, they spun <laughs> up an entire car team and they failed, and they brought it back, and they they spun up a team to be a supplier. Maybe that supplier was just in car UX. Maybe that supplier was an entire electric car platform they were going to sell to people. That failed and spun down. Then there was just a bunch of noise for a while. And now we're at, like, Kia's going to build the car. 
you know, like, again, it's just a sine wave of hype of what are they going to do? How are they going to do it? We've hired 10,000 engineers. They're all in a warehouse. We fired 6,000 engineers. We hired 4,000. Like, that is the, <laughs> the wave of rumors around the car project. And I think they're still trying to figure out what technology they're going to build, how they're going to take it to market, how they're going to move the needle on their on their balance sheet. Like, if you're Apple yeah. and you're risking tanking your brand with a car that crashes a lot, it has to move the needle for your investors. Yeah. If you're Apple and this is, it's not going to be a small thing when the Apple car rolls off the line and you're going to have that moment, you, you just need to make it worth it. Whereas I think supplying, like how long did it take Toyota to put CarPlay in their car? Way too long. Uh, like just, right. just this year. How long did it take <laughs> Ford to realize like we should maybe just call Google? Like, they, 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 I think it was like four or five years ago, they were on the cusp of a Google partnership and it failed. Yeah. Right. And now, well, that, now that, was, that was around using the Waymo autonomous driving system. Um, right. And they're like, we'll just hire our own engineers and they'll build it. And they're like, wait a minute. It's right. actually much harder than you think. Yeah. Right. Right. We'll just get nine women together and we'll have a baby in a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how it works. Um, like, so I just like fundamentally, I think all of the car companies are coming around to realizing like, A, owning the tech stack inside the car is really lucrative. There's all kinds of services and partnerships and advertising. You can get money. You can get recurring revenue out of a car that right now- You can get a lot of data out of a car. You can get a lot sure. of data out of a car. You can sell that data in other ways. You can use that data for all kinds of things. Right now, the only really recurring revenue model for a car is leasing, right? Like fundamentally. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean- service it, it, but but least in yeah, general I mean, yeah. you know they, they tried to do that with subscriptions and that is really you know that's not it hasn't worked as a business um you know the the only company that's getting getting any traction with that is volvo with their their system that is basically just a, a modified version of a lease um, yeah so yeah the that recurring revenue is is that's what everybody's looking for and but if you give away the interface your opportunities for recurring revenue go away yeah Right, and what I mean by leasing is recurring revenue, just to be clear, is there are a lot of people in the world who are just going to pay $300 a month for the rest of their lives to have a yep. car, right? Because they're just going to trade in on leases over and over and over again. That is a huge opportunity for car makers if they can bundle other things onto that payment. So why would you give away? The most valuable things you can bundle are the interface because that's where you can put all the stuff. Yeah. Like, Why would you just hand that away to Apple? And so I, I think that's how Apple ended up at, we're just going to make our own car. And, and, you know, I think that's that's one of the reasons why manufacturers, you know, are increasingly are going to Android Automotive, because they're, they don't have to give away the interface. You know, they've got, the, they're getting the, the underlying bits that make it all work from Google, but, you know, they control the interface. You know, Volvo and Polestar have their own UI on that. FCA has got their Uconnect interface on top of that. And, and you know, Ford is probably going to do another iteration of Sync on, on top of, <laughs> Uh, Android yeah. Automotive. So, all right. Well, I think uh, we've taken up a, a bunch of your time, Nikolai, and, and uh, we know you're you're busy. And I really want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. We didn't yell about Fox Body Mustangs even once. <laughs> no, I thought I, I was mean, doing an hour on Fox <laughs> Bodies. Do you, do you want to do that? You can have you come back, or if you just want to stay in the chair. I like, will just can... tell you, it is my colleague Tamara Warren. Um, uh -huh. I know Tamara. Her 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 big theory was that. When people get older, they buy the classic cars of their teenage years. And we are that's absolutely true. We are firmly in the moment where people are spending too much money 
on like 91 Mustang GTs. For, for, for what it's it worth. It is ridiculous. When, when I graduated from college in 1990, I wanted to buy myself a new car. My short list was the Mitsubishi Eclipse Turbo, which I knocked out <laughs> quickly. Uh, five liter LX Mustang and the Miata, which was brand new at the time. It had just come out. And I decided since I was going to be driving it year round, I bought a five liter LX Mustang, a 1991 five liter LX notchback. And uh, that was, you know, I drove that for the next eight years. And three years ago, I finally bought the Miata, the, a 1990 <laughs> Miata. So I've had them both now. And so she was yeah. exactly right. You nailed it. Yeah. I just, yep. man, they are, they were cars of their moment, of their time. They were just not very good cars. <laughs> like, that's yeah. it. That's all I got to say about them. It was quick and it, it was, was cheap. It was so funny because, yeah, they consistently, the Mustang has been, at least from like the early 80s, the Mustang was outperformed by the, the GMF bodies, so the Camaro and the Firebird. Oh, yeah, easily. Uh, those are always better performance cars. The Mustang always outsold them. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly. Well, those F bodies <laughs> looked horrible in that time. Like they looked real bad. Like if you go back and look at, if you just go look at they, them. Yeah. Um, they were, yeah, they were a little bit like, uh, yeah, they were. They had a lot of chest. Yeah. It's gonna be. So. <laughs> here's what I'll tell you. Like, I, I'm getting yeah. to the place now where I can like go back and buy a cool car. Like I could buy an SN95 Cobra Mustang. They're not expensive right now because they haven't been up by other people. You know what yeah. I mean? Like those right. teens haven't grown up. When that happens, when we hit that moment, I'll, like one, I'll know I'm officially old, and two, I'll be like, "These cars are horrible." <laughs> like, yeah, even that's worse. coming for you. Yeah, it's coming for you because I'm I'm only like three years older than you, and I'm already having that experience. <laughs> like, I, I you know I keep watching like the the bring a trailer results. I'm like, why, why would you pay that for that car? Like, and it's funny the cars like um the most recent one that just made me just put my face in my palm was uh, a Volvo. V70R Ooh. wagon, like a 2002, 2003. Cool car, but it went for like $28,000. It's like, what, what, what is the matter with you? Like, go, yeah. go buy Like six years nine. ago, a Fox Body <laughs> GT, you could easily get a nice one for like 8000 and now they're going for like yeah, 22 no, not or 28 really. Like, yeah. don't do that. And they're not good. You're right. They're not good. They're fun cars. They're not great cars. <laughs> like, you can have a lot of fun with them, but when you yeah. when your purchase price is, it better be like perfect for twenty eight thousand dollars because that's what it's going to cost you to re restore one. But if if you're paying that for a basket case, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, and I'm saying this as a Mustang person, like a guy who loves Mustangs, own a Mustang, will definitely own another one. Yeah, just let it. Just watch the music videos and just like move on. You'll be good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the same. Well, I appreciate the time you have spent. I do look forward to being able to go to the Verizon store and get my Apple car <laughs> for $900 a month for the next two years. Um, but yeah, no, thanks for joining us. We'll come back anytime. Yeah, man, this was great. Really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks. Um, but thanks, everybody, for listening. That is episode 185, and we'll see you again uh, real soon. Thanks for listening to Wheelbearings. Hey, we love to listen to our listeners, too. Drop us an email to feedback at wheelbearings.media with your thoughts, questions, or conversation starters. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media. You can also find us on Twitter at wheelbearingscast. Don't use any vowels except for the A in cast. So that's W-H-L-B-R-N-G-S, cast. Thanks again. We hope to hear from you soon.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.